2 Samuel chapter 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag, on the third day, behold, a man out of the camp from Saul, with his clothes torn and earth on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the earth and showed respect. David said to him, Where do you come from? He said to him, I have escaped out of the camp of Israel. David said to him, How did it go? Please tell me. He answered, The people have fled from the battle, and many of the people also have fallen and are dead. Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan his son are dead? The young man who told him said, As I happened by chance on Mount Gilboa, behold, Saul was leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen followed close behind him. When he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. I answered, Here I am. He said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said to me, Please stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has taken hold of me, because my life lingers in me. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and all the men who were with him did likewise. They mourned, wept, and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of Yahweh and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? He answered, I am the son of a foreigner and a Malachite. David said to him, Why were you not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy Yahweh's anointed? David called one of the young men and said, Go near and cut him down. He struck him so that he died. David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have slain Yahweh's anointed. David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son, and he commanded them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. Your glory, Israel, was slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Don't tell it in Gath. Don't publish it in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain on you, and no fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled and cast away. The shield of Saul was not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, Jonathan's bow didn't turn back. Saul's sword didn't return empty. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives. In their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel weep over Saul who clothed you delicately in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your clothing. How the mighty have fallen in the middle of the battle. Jonathan was slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love was wonderful, passing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war have perished. So this is the first chapter of 2 Samuel. And 1 and 2 Samuel were originally one big book. And, um, but in, at the time when the, 
the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the Septuagint, around about 200 years before Jesus, they decided for convenience to split it into two. <laughs> and it still is to this day. So it's, it's really just the book of Samuel. Now I used to think to myself, just recently, why was it called Samuel when Samuel's only in 1 Samuel up to chapter 24? And then the book of 2 Samuel doesn't even have him in it at all. Well, the truth is it's, it's called Samuel or 1 and 2 Samuel because it's the story of Samuel and the two kings that he anointed. It's really the story of three people, Samuel, Saul and David. And the first book is really all about Samuel and Saul, even though David's figures in it. And the division happens right here at the end of Saul's life. And from here on, the book is all about David. So 2 Samuel is all about David. 1 Samuel is all about Samuel and Saul. And uh, so that's why the book is split here. So in this uh, chapter, the book starts with an Amalekite coming to Ziklag and reporting the news from the battle. So this was really, really common. When there would be a battle, there would be people that would run out with messages. And this guy, an Amalekite, has um, got the crown of Saul and the bracelet of Saul. Now you remember in the last chapter, we read that Saul uh, fell on his sword and killed himself. So that's how Saul died. So this Amalekite is going to lie about how he got these things. But I suspect it was during, there's a period of time, you know, in ancient battle where they would they'd be defeating and killing and they'd be following the army and attacking them. And then when the, the battle was over, then they would return to strip the dead and to plunder. But there's a period of time where they're not going to start plundering because they, they still need to keep fighting. And in, um, was it this chapter, it said that there was a period of about a day before they returned to strip the dead. And I suspect that the Amalekite is uh, one of these, uh, what, do you, what do you call them, looters. In ancient times, there were people that would, if they knew there was a battle, they were <laughs> very smart, they would stay near the battle and wait till it was over. And then they would, in this intervening period, they would go and loot. Because there's a way of getting free stuff. And so this, I suspect, this Amalekite has come across King Saul and thought, whoa, I've struck it rich. <laughs> and he's, he's trying to take advantage of the situation to get some great reward from David. He thinks David's gonna be super pleased he doesn't know that David thinks very differently. David's a picture of Christ. Christ doesn't think like anyone you know, and David thinks very differently to all these other people around him. So I did my trusty measurement on Google Maps. Um, you just right click on Google Maps and you can measure any two distances. And so from Mount Gilboa all the way down to Ziklag where David was in a straight line was 139 kilometers. On, the, on Google Maps, it also shows you like what route to take, you know, how Google's always suggesting the best way of getting there. The quickest way by car was 185 kilometers because it's not in a straight route. You've got to go down like in a kind of a, an S shape. But the straight line was 139. I think that this Amalekite leaving the battle to go to David, he, um, he wouldn't have gone in a straight line because of the hills. There's a, very, a lot of mountains all through the middle of Israel. So he's traveled probably more than 150 kilometers as well as all the ups and the downs. He's rushing to meet David. David had only been back at Ziklag, what, two days? This was the third day. David had left, um, David had left uh, the battle with, Saul, with uh, King Achish 
and it had taken three days to get to Ziklag. So David travels from the battle to Ziklag in three days, then he's away fighting and rescuing soldiers for a couple of days, and then he's back two days. So it's been about a week, or maybe eight days. The battle takes one to two days, so this man has taken six days or so, or maybe five, to get from the battle to David, and that's about right for a distance of about 150 kilometers. And he was probably carrying other things than the crown. He probably plundered other stuff too. So he's expecting a reward because uh, he thinks David's gonna be pleased and David is not pleased. Uh, David is, is unhappy and in the end, this Amalekite ends up perishing for, for taking a stand against the Lord's anointing and anointed and we must be careful never to do the same. Um, he thinks, you know, like this Amalekite thinks that David is going to celebrate when he hears the news of Saul. The first thing that David does is lament. Now, you imagine for a minute that Saul, you know, Saul was chasing David all around the desert trying to kill him. You imagine for a minute that, David, that Saul heard some news that David had perished. Imagine he hears news that David has been defeated in some little skirmish or David has fallen off a cliff at En Gedi or and has hurt himself. What's Saul's reaction going to be? His reaction is going to be, yay, <laughs> great news. Um, so, and I think the Amalekite expects a, a, a gleeful reaction from David over Saul. But no, when he sees Saul lament, he realizes, oh, something's different here. And, and then David sings this whole s s song of lament, which we'll talk about in just one second. You can see how David is a picture of Christ. You know, we are the enemies of Christ, but the Lord comes to save us. And there's not a single person that, that dies and goes to hell that, that the Lord doesn't weep over. You know, even Jerusalem, the Lord said, Oh, Jerusalem, you know, you know, how I wished I could have held you, how I wished I could have helped you, but you were not willing. The Lord, the Lord doesn't rejoice over any of his enemies who perish. The Lord tries to turn his enemies into his friends. And David's a real picture of that. And we must be very careful not to rejoice. If, if you see someone where something bad happens to them, even if you think they're a terrible person, don't rejoice. It's, it happens on the internet. You know, like for example, a few years ago, uh, a, a prominent Christian got put in jail. Uh, he was uh, accused of something and, and found guilty. And, and it was, it, he wasn't actually guilty. He was released on appeal but all the celebrations that went on in the news. And, um, but this is really common, you know, in the world. But as Christians, we must be so careful to not have this attitude in us because it's not in Christ. So, and some Christians, they have this type of attitude towards other churches. If something bad happens to another church, they have this competitive mindset, like our church is better than theirs. And when something bad happens to another church, they celebrate. And that's the stinkiest thing ever. It's terrible and so displeasing to God. God hates it. And you've got to clean. If there's any part of your heart where you want something bad to happen to someone else or you're, you celebrate when something bad happens to someone else, you've got to clean it out because it's ungodly and it's wrong. And even though David was, was treated so badly by Saul, his response here is a Christ-like one. He laments. And he says a whole bunch of interesting things. And um, he says, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Now, Saul was mighty. He was the king. And he says, you know, Saul and Jonathan, you're swifter than eagles, you know, stronger than lions. He says all these wonderful things. And, um, 
Well, there's two interesting things I want to comment on in his lament. One is that he says, uh, he, he puts this curse on the mount, mountains of Gilboa. And he says, may there be no dew or rain on you. <laughs> now, if you, if you go to Mount Gilboa today, uh, does it rain on Mount Gilboa? <laughs> there are some articles on this. I thought it was interesting. Yes, it does rain on Mount Gilboa. Was, did David's curse fail to come to pass? Um, well, <laughs> what I think happens here, what I think happened was it was a symbolic curse. Um, now, some commentators said, one commentator said that Mount Gilboa remains under the curse to this day as is verified by its dry condition, which is true. If you go to Mount Gilboa, it's definitely a dry mountain. It's very dry. There's not a lot of rain. And uh, so maybe in that sense, it's true. But it does sometimes rain on Mount Gilboa, and apparently in the winter it comes out with the most wonderful flowers and the most wonderful birds. Like the wildflowers are amazing. I saw pictures of them; they look fantastic. What I think happens here is it's it's more of a symbolic curse. I don't think David really hated the mountains of Gilboa, and he was cursing them with like this hatred of "I want something bad to happen to you." It's like um, it's like when some, this is a lament. It's poetic language. And he, he's just wanting to write a song to honor Saul and Jonathan. It's not about let something bad happen to these other places. And I think he's saying, oh, you know, proclaim it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in Ashkelon. You know, you know, daughters of Israel, you know, weep for Saul. And let there be no rain on Mount Gilboa. So it's all poetic language. And it, it's all just to show how much Saul and Jonathan mattered. I don't think David was, was physically wanting there to be a curse on these mountains. And I think if you go to Mount Gilboa today and you enjoy the wildflowers, I think you'll see that that's the case. The other interesting thing that happened is that David commented on Jonathan about how wonderful he was, and he said that his love was greater than the love of women. There's, two, there's at least two things to say here. One is that David didn't really, David didn't really follow God's plan for marriage properly. You know, he had multiple wives. He had 22 in all by the time he died. But at this point, he had a couple of wives at the time he wrote this song. Whenever you're in a situation with multiple family, multiple families involved or multiple partners involved, it gets very complicated and it's not the Lord's ideal. So you could say on one hand that he had a genuine friend in Jonathan and it's no wonder that he thought that that friendship was better than the friendships he had with his wives. So that's, that's clearly true from a practical point of view. There's a reason why the Lord made us to be monogamous, because it's the Lord's best way. But having said that, I think Jonathan, the relationship he had with Jonathan was a very special one. Not just, not just a better than, than his marriage is one, but a genuinely special relationship. One where their hearts were knit together so that they had one heart and one mind. And this is the state that God wants the body of Christ to come to, where we love one another from the heart. And it's wonderful. I think this, this is what heaven's going to be like. And so when the Lord draws you close together with people so that you, you have the same heart, that you're able to pray with the same feeling, you're able to share thoughts and feelings, there's no judgment between you, you're, you're working together. All these things are very, very wonderful and is not as common as you think. But when the Lord is at work, when you seek it, when the Holy Spirit's power is released, it can happen. And it happened on the day of Pentecost when the Bible says they were all of one accord and the Holy Spirit fell on them their hearts were knit together on that day as well. So it's an example to us 
that God does these things not just in New Testament times, he did them in Old Testament times and he can do them in our time as well. Heavenly Father, I want to pray that you would rid our hearts of all sense of rejoicing over the struggles of others or their demise. But Lord, instead, let us carry the heart of Christ towards others, even towards our enemies, so that, Lord, that we want what's right, we want what's best. Lord, let us be people who have the Lord's heart in us, even to our enemies. So, Father, give us grace. And I also pray, Lord, you'd bring us into the place of being one heart and one mind. Lord, knit the body of Christ together. I ask for the spirit of community to be released today to all my witnesses. Lord, build your church, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.